second part and final part of the Taiping Rebellion. 18, we're going from 1860 to 1864. If you haven't listened to our the rest of our series, we started with episode, I guess, 27 on the first Opium War, which was in the 1840s, 1838 to 1840, I guess. Uh, and then we did the beginning of the Taiping Rebellion, the second Opium War, and now we're going to do the second part of the Taiping Rebellion. And we're going to just keep going on East Asia after this. We're going to go to Japan. We're going to come back to China. We're going to go to Korea. Right, Dave? Yeah. So you want to start us off with uh, getting back to the Taiping? Yeah. Uh, after the the Tianjin incident where they were uh, murdering each other and their families, and things got a little bit crazy, the remaining Taiping generals and leaders are trying to find a way to broaden their popular support. One thing they thought of was creating an alliance with Europeans. After all, they're fighting, you know, the Qing dynasty, so we have something in common there. And and aren't we all Christians? Those efforts, though, came to nothing. Uh, Europeans realized, at least as soon as they actually spoke to the Taiping in person, realized that their version of Christianity had some substantial differences. And the main obstacle, of course, was opium. The Taiping do not trade opium, do not allow opium, execute people who use opium. So that's not going to work. And I suppose the other thing is that having gone to war with the Qing dynasty twice now over opium, we have them where we want them. We've got deals in place with access to ports. If the Taiping were to win, we'd have to start all over again. And they might be a little more difficult to beat, coerce, you know, maneuver into the position we want them. So as it is, the British particularly, the Americans and so on, they're more comfortable dealing with the Manchu than, than with the Taiping. And as far as support among Chinese people goes, the rural landowners are changing their minds. Their opposition to the the Qing dynasty doesn't seem all that great compared to their fear of the Taiping. The Taiping are hostile to Confucian ideas. They're hostile to, you know, traditional Chinese customs. They insist on gender equality, but that comes with the segregation of the genders, and that includes married couples. So joining their movement is basically saying goodbye to your to your wife. There's also the atrocities. <laughs> I think you have a quotation about uh, how how strict and and well, yeah, yeah. So how deadly um, the Taiping are. This is Platt, uh, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, which is the main. Uh, book that i had a lot of quotes from it good title. covers yeah yeah it's pretty good it covers a lot of the um covers a lot of the europe what the europeans were saying and doing too which is part of what you know we do here on civilizations um but there's yeah the plot has a lot of descriptions of like what life and i guess death was like inside the taiping controlled zones um and so i i yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting to try to paint a picture of what it looks like to live in that zone. So um, Platt has this quote, um, the pattern such as it was, was this, where the generals resided, there was relative order. Soldiers who violated the heavenly army's strict rules of discipline were punished swiftly and mercy, mercilessly. Heads hung on stakes with placards nailed to them warning would-be rapists and looters. But at the fringes, where smaller groups of Taiping soldiers moved among larger civilian populations, control became tenuous. At the cusp of conquest, depravity could be unleashed as cities fell and imperial defenses crumbled. The violence of the conquering Taiping and the defeated imperialists, he calls the Manchu imperialists, uh, I call uh, the British and French and Americans imperialists, so... Um, he means the defeated Manchu uh, were was often impossible to distinguish. But once control was established and there was no threat of 
uh, Qing re-invasion, things became quiet. Taxes were collected, crops were grown, new officials were appointed, decrees were promulgated and sometimes rescinded. Hair grew long on top in the rebel fashion. Uh, Cues, i.e. ponytails, weren't cut off. A welcome convenience uh, should the Qing reappear. Yeah, <laughs> went on. I, I read about that as well. Uh, you, you have the fine tradition of brigands. So when social order breaks down, people take to the hills or, or turn to banditry as their career choice. Yeah. And then operating on the fringes of these armies, there are opportunities for looting and all sorts of atrocities that will be blamed on one side or the other. And then deserters, defeated armies. Yeah, it, it's not always the Taiping. Yeah, and when it's uh, anarchy like that, or when it cha- becomes chaotic like that, that's when, you know, that's oh. when you get all kinds of like massive casualties because societies basically collapse. Yeah. The people end up suffering either way. Um, so you mentioned that the Taiping are against Confucianism and there's some fascinating stuff in Platt about, uh, kind of like the inevitability of Confucianism in a way. So let me just t- explain. So the Taiping, you know, they're controlling a huge chunk of territory for almost a decade. So they have to figure out how to govern. So they build parallel institutions. So they start with six boards, finance, civil affairs, war, public works, rituals, and punishments. This somewhat parallels what the Qing uh, government is doing. And then um, they institute an exam system. <laughs> so, so here's a quote from Platt. The entire story of the Taiping Rebellion might be told from one perspective as the rage of a failed exam candidate writ large. But the rebel government in Nanjing nevertheless accepted that the existing examination system was an extremely effective mechanism for selecting loyal officials and that the educated of China looked forward to competing in it. And so, in the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom, as under the Qing, talent was determined by examination, only now based on the Bible, not the Confucian classics. Loyalist scholars living under Taiping conquests tended to scoff at the Christian content of the Taiping examinations. One scholar near Su Zhou, who had to write on the topic paying tribute to the Heavenly Father, expressed bemusement that the Taiping meant something new by the Chinese character for heaven. Handing in his paper, he whispered to his examiner, how can the heaven I wrote about today somehow be different from the heaven that used to be. The examiner smiled silently and then ripped up the man's completed essay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there are higher pass rates, um, meaning, you know, they're not as strict about who gets to pass the exam because they need uh, bureaucrats more than the Qing do. Um, But, and here's the other thing. In 1854, it was all about the Bible, but by 1861, they had slowly reintroduced Confucian texts into the canon for the exams. I did not know that. (laughs) Yeah, you can't. You just can't. You just can't get away from it. Um, Okay, so uh, it's interesting because the Qing general... uh, Zhang Guofan, who I'll tell you more about, he uh, he's a big player of the game Go. For listeners who have ever played Go, it's the kind of East Asian version of chess. Uh, and it involves uh, a grid. And then there's one side with white stones and one side with black stones. And you just place your stones on the board. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to, you're trying to surround the other guy's stones. And he's trying to surround your stones. So it's this game of encirclement um, by the placement of your stones. And um, so, uh, yeah. It would be highly appropriate for European warfare in in the 1700s. Right. Flanking maneuvers? Well, cutting them off from their supplies, capturing their supply depots or or a key city, maneuvering them away from their defensive position, be it a river or a, or a, a ridge or a mountain or whatever. So yeah, it's, it, it's actually very appropriate until of course, Napoleon. And then Napoleon didn't play go. He played right. all, already gone <laughs> way behind you. 
<laughs> got the t-shirt. Well, no, actually, you could argue that Napoleon would have been a good Go player too. Yeah. yeah so I it makes so. perfect sense. Um. So the so this is you know if you want to analyze this war in grand strategy terms, the Taiping strategy, uh, as kind of set out by. Uh, the two kings, I guess, Hong Rangan and Liu Xucheng. Well, Hong, uh, Hong Rangan is Hong Sushan's uh, cousin, yo- yeah. younger cousin, because he only joins the movement in 1859, but he immediately gets an awful lot of authority, probably because all of uh, Hong's previous friends, supporters, and and. Oh, key right. generals are dead because he killed them or they killed each other. or So there's a vacuum at the top. And that's where Hong Rangan comes in. And then we know about Liu right. Shuchen. Um, so again, quoting Platt, uh, to the, their plan is to consolidate the fertile southern provinces, rebuild the heartland of the old Ming Empire, and then starve the dry Manchu domains of the north into extinction. So to do that, it's all about the Yangtze River, which the uh, well, the people I call are the imperialists are in control of, more or less. Um, and there's a town called Anqing, which is kind of like the linchpin. So there's a lot of fighting over this town, Anqing. Does, so does yeah. Platt mention access to the Europeans? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll get we'll get we'll get okay. a lot because the Taiping that. really want to break through and trade with them. Yeah. So for example. Um, Liu Xucheng tries to get across the Yangtze River um, to defend Anqing from Zheng Guofan, the, the Qing general. And he sends a letter to the British consul asking him if they are going to let, if they could let him get across. The British consul just is like, oh, cool, let one of these letters in like Chinese writing. And he just keeps it. He doesn't deliver it. <laughs> it's just, yeah, unbelievable. Um, the, so the, so a little bit more about man, about Zhang Guofan. So I, I think I mentioned him in the first Taiping episode. He's uh, like a real like literary scholar type. And he he really builds the army on Confucian principles. So it's like every the officers recruit their soldiers who are accountable to them. The soldiers, you know, the junior officers recruit the more junior soldiers etc it's there's family connections are key um it's interesting because you know there was a quote i read during the 1857 india um uh episodes about a recruiting poster that they are pamphlet that they sent around and they said something like you know if it's your time to die nobody can save you and if if you're um if it's not your time to die there you you know there's nothing anyone can do to hurt you and if you uh, you know and that they were trying to say like you have to fight like um and it's interesting that around the same time Zhang Guofan is using the same line so he said apparently if it is not your time to die then even if 10 million of the enemy surround you they will not be able to kill you if it is your time to die even if you stay home and sit still death will still find you and I wonder <laughs> you know he might have maybe you know the, the the it's possible that these things travel uh, you know, it was shortly after that that maybe he got a copy of that pamphlet, or maybe that's just a fatalistic idea that is popular everywhere. Um, I wonder yeah. what that means, though, to run the army on a on a Confucian system. So, okay, so we talked a little bit about the banner men, right? Yeah, and the <clears throat> banners, uh, and the so they had like Mongol cavalry, the Manchu banners, and then militias. Um, and the militias are just like they raise them uh, during incidents and then they let them go. But what he's doing is he he's um, <clears throat> uh, he's he's basically saying like the Confucian idea is that, you know, the basis of everything is the relationship between fathers and sons. Yeah. So this is like this is like an army that's going to run on that idea. Um, so. It's all like top down, you know, accountability, (laughs) accountability to your father figure, whoever that is. And then the father figure is responsible for you. And they're responsible like in all, in all the, in all ways, like they have to make sure they're fed. They have to make sure they're. um, That's interesting because what I read about the, uh, the, the Xiang army, which was 
raised and at least partially funded by Zheng is that they were largely composed of irregulars. Um, well, that, he seems to have in... tapped into fear and resentment yeah. of the Taiping, uh, people who just hated the Taiping or feared them more than they did the Manchu. There's an interesting thing because he starts in his own province of Hunan and he is able to do it there because he's well known there. Um, and there are some limits early on to how big and how fast he can grow the army because he's not, you know, known outside of Hunan. And so trying to trying to use the kind of patron client relationships of the of the region doesn't necessarily work if you're not the honcho in the region. Mm. Um, so he had some some issues there. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I think I think I think there's also very much, <laughs> you know, resentment, but also fear uh, of not just of the Taiping, you know, not necessarily that they're going to commit atrocities because God knows Zhang Guofan and his army committed atrocities galore. Um, more of like uh, in a very controlled way, right? Like he wasn't releasing them to massacre, but he would sort of execute everybody or whatever after taking a, okay. a town that's disloyal. Um, well, this but, this Xiang army yeah. actually had some some success. Uh, they captured the city of Zhujiang from the Taiping and the rest of Shangxi province. Right. The the bad news was that in 1860, that's when the Taiping defeated the Manchu army that had been besieging Nanjing since 53. They didn't eliminate it. The siege is still going on in a looser fashion, but it was a pretty major victory. And now the threat is that the Taiping will move on Shanghai. Right. Right. So do you want to, do you want to continue? Sure. Until 1861? Sure. So the, Shanghai is not only important to the Qing dynasty, it's important to the Europeans. They don't want the Taiping to take Shanghai. So when the Taiping army arrived to take Shanghai, they were repulsed by a combination of imperial troops, uh, Qing dynasty troops, uh, supported by a group of European officers, adventurers, under a, a really colorful fellow named Frederick Townsend Ward. Is he like the last samurai Chinese version? You're a lot closer than you know. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to that. Ward was American. He was a, a sailor for the most part. He was only 29 years old. And his career before that is really quite colorful. So he's a sailor. He's promoted. He's thrown overboard by his own crew because they didn't like the fact that he gave them so many orders. You know, here's this young know-it-all who's ordering us all around. So they actually threw him overboard. He was briefly a mercenary. He served with Walker in Mexico. And you know... Walker, who... Walker Texas Ranger? No. the oh. the Your favorite Walker. Oh, Walker. From the Mexican Ranger <laughs> War. Yeah. I, I don't think he deserves an episode, but does anybody in the U.S. know who this guy is? <laughs> Walker was the man who would be king, American style. He was a mercenary who who just wanted, I guess, war and adventure for their own sake, but he, he was trying to carve himself out a personal empire. So he actually invaded Mexico with mercenary troops, tried uh, twice to overthrow the government of Nicaragua and and make himself like president of or governor of the U.S. state of Nicaragua. Anyway, uh, he has uh, some colorful history and he has obviously modern equivalents. You know, the mercenaries of the 60s, 70s. Eight. There's yeah, there's Silver Corps. <laughs> I think there's uh, there they didn't they go to Venice? They went to Venezuela. Like oh last yes, year. that interesting adventure that went well, didn't it? <laughs> so, uh, but what Ward learned from Walker was how to recruit mercenaries. Ward 
also joined the French army and served in the Crimean War, which is just bizarre. There are some sources that say he was in Mexico again, this time serving with Juarez. I don't know about that. But he also was, as a sailor, uh, in China two or three times, still in his 20s. So he learned about the opium trade, trade with China, the Taiping, how things worked. And he just happened to be in Shanghai, and, and the Taiping were coming, and he offered to put together a group of Europeans who could, you know, help defend the city. So he gathered a group of 100 mercenaries. Where would you find these guys? Well, most of them are deserters, particularly from the British Navy. Some are just adventurers, but they had one thing in common, and that's that they had uh, modern weapons and they knew how to use them. So these are marksmen with superior weapons, and they made a difference far, far beyond their their numbers. In fact, he attracted the attention of several uh, scholars, I think including uh, Zhang Guofan, who financed him to raise even more. So he started a company of Western mercenaries. They were called the Shanghai Foreign Army Corps. Now, his little force had a couple of minor successes, but then they were given jobs just too much to handle, like attack a fortified town without artillery. Right, because the part of their... Part of the reason they're hired is because there's this mystique, right, about impi- about imperialist soldiers uh, going back to the first opium war because yeah. of the because of the technology, you know, the technological difference and just you know how badly the Chinese army performed against them. Oh there yeah, story- <clears throat> there's a story in Platt where uh, you know some commander, some Qing commander, fighting the Taiping. Uh, dressed his soldiers up as Europeans and pretended to speak uh, European. (laughs) Barbarian. Barbarian to try to intimidate the Taiping into thinking that they were fighting uh, European soldiers. (laughs) And I think it probably worked. We mentioned it in our earlier episodes about the Opium Wars, that, you know, a thousand British soldiers going up against 20,000 Manchu bannermen and the casualties are disproportionate to a ridiculous level yeah so yes yeah i think so too same same deal but ward's little force was simply asked to do too much he had to uh, recruit more men to replace losses and of course by losses not only killed and wounded but desertions and uh, death by drunkenness apparently most of his men were drunk pretty much all the time so he recruited more men including uh, 80 Filipinos. They were uh, they were called Manila men. He bought some artillery with money from his Chinese backers. And his second assault on, on this town he was asked to capture was successful. But then he walked into a Taiping ambush and lost half of his men. He himself was shot in the jaw and, and had a speech impediment from then on. He came back in 1861. The Corps had begun to fall apart without him, but he came back and and regrouped. He had a problem with the British. They were very upset because of how many of their sailors were deserting to join Ward. He offered better pay. So wanting to remain neutral in the war and yet ticked off at Ward, they, they were thinking in terms of arresting him. So Ward had an interesting way of getting out of this problem. He became a Chinese subject. He swore fealty to the emperor and became Chinese. So now they can't arrest him. In May of 1861, he was back in front of the town of uh, Qingpu and failed again. And this is this is one thing I, I really find interesting about Ward. He just does not seem to be, you know, depressed or despondent after repeated failures. He just gets up. And tries again, which is which is not at all like uh, Zhang Guofan in the sense that <coughs> Zhang Guofan tried to commit suicide, you know, three or four times over. Oh, really? Lost, yeah, lost battles, <clears throat> and he would he tried to walk into the river, and his men had to 
grab him and pull him out and stuff. And yeah, he's a you know, uh, we talked a lot about Lord Elgin last time. Uh, Zhang Guofan also kept a journal and wrote all kinds of interesting things uh, in his journal and in his uh, correspondence. Uh, uh, some biographers <clears throat> have uh, praised Ward. And I mean, that's the thing with biography, right? Before you even pick up the topic, chances are that you are favorably disposed to your subject. By that, I mean biased. So sometimes with biographies, it's hard to find a balanced one. Why would you write a biography of someone you, you dislike or have no respect for? So I tried to find some <laughs> fair treatment of Ward that wasn't over the top. Uh, I found one by Richard J. Smith. He said that um, Ward's troops were repeatedly sent into the field without adequate preparation. His poorly trained and ill-disciplined contingent stood virtually no chance of success against Yu Zhusheng's seasoned troops. These are Taiping troops. Sometimes drunk and always disorderly, the Foreign Arms Corps depended primarily on the element of surprise and the superiority of Western weapons to obtain victory. And I think Ward, Ward got it. He, he knew what his advantages and disadvantages were. So he came up with a new scheme, pitched it to his Chinese backers, and they said, go ahead. So he reformed the corps and, and tried to rely primarily on local Chinese troops rather than these drunken, disorderly foreigners. The idea was to train these Chinese soldiers in Western weaponry, marksmanship, uh, tactics, uh, the use of artillery, and it, it worked. There was an imperial officer attached to him, Li Hongshang, uh, who was ordered to cooperate with Ward, but also to watch him. And Ward benefited from this change in the mood of the Chinese peasantry. Previously, they had been completely uninterested in fighting for the Qing dynasty. But now... With the Taiping on their door, they're, they're willing to fight to defend themselves. So Ward not only trained them, he designed uniforms for them. And this I find <laughs> really interesting because the uniforms are strange, very strange, uh, Western style, but he included turbans. I guess he had seen... Uh, Indian yeah, that's zip-wise. probably that. That probably shows <laughs> that it's like a real symbol of we're the foreign, you know, <clears throat> we're the foreign troops. devils. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, a lot of the a lot of the troops, I guess, come from Punjab. So at at first, his soldiers were apparently distressed by their uniforms, and they suffered a lot of mockery. They were called imitation foreign devils. But once they started to prove themselves in combat, they started to get proud of their of their gear and their distinctive uniforms, which is, like, I guess, what Ward had been trying to, to achieve. I don't know if he was doing what you're saying and, and making them look Western, but it certainly worked that way. And, and it did scare the Taiping. So by January of 62, uh, Ward had about 1,000 men Pretty small force, considering that the Taiping uh, faithful king had 120,000 soldiers in his attempt to cut off and capture Shanghai. So Ward attacked the city of Guangfulin, which was defended by 20,000 Taiping. But the unusual tactics and the strange uniforms did their work. Ward was uh, very aggressive and kept attacking, and he drove them from the city and then captured a couple of other towns. Of course, he kept getting wounded, which slowed down his campaign. Uh, In one fight, he was wounded five times, including losing a finger to a musket ball. So he was not hiding in the back, that's for sure. The faithful king decided to get rid of this strange little force and sent... 20,000 Taiping to attack wards by now 1,500. 
and Ward was able to set up his own ambush with camouflaged artillery, and the Taiping walked into his trap, 2,000 killed, 800 captured, which is double the number of Ward's entire force. And that earned Ward a compliment or a, a promotion of kind. The imperial government renamed his little force the Ever-Victorious Army, which is a lovely name considering how often they weren't victorious, but hey, propaganda, right? Start referring to them as the Ever-Victorious Army and they're going to start believing it. And, and I guess the Taiping will too. Ward had several other successes in the summer of 62, but I'll come to those a little later. You wanted to uh, talk some more about Shang uh, Fan. Yeah, so one of the big uh, keys to victory here, increasingly clear after the Opium War II ends, is to get the imperialists on your side. So Zhang Guofan is uh, working hard trying to make sure that the imperialists don't supply Anqing. Uh, does it seem to you, Dave, that a lot of this war is, at least in this phase, like based on sieges? Like you're, we're besieging this place and they're trying to relieve the siege. I guess that's where the encirclement and encirclement of the encirclement kind of there are <clears throat> yes there there are but there are also quite a few attempted storm storms yeah. of cities right. um and if you can get uh, treachery somebody to open a gate if you can uh, intimidate and scare them enough the defenders won't fight that hard and you can actually break into a, a city the taiping did it several times and then of course so, the the intimidation the taiping were also famous for hoisting black flags, which was the signal for no mercy. We're going to kill everybody in the city, which usually starts an exodus. Exactly. So that's what happens in Anqing. Uh, September 1861 <clears throat> basically is when the the imperialists pretty much stop supplying them at, at the request of the Qing um, by 1861. And then the city falls pretty shortly after that. It's one of those, you know, horrific starvation siege situations. So by the time it falls, every rat has been eaten already. Cannibalism has advanced. Uh, and Zhang Guofan basically kills all the survivors when the city is taken. So again, like this is this is the most devastating civil war uh, in history for a reason, right? This is the kind of thing. Um just to just to give you a sense of the scale of what's going on here in this part of the world at this time, the Taiping held portion of China has 26 million people, which is about the same size as the entire United States population uh, at this time. Wow. Uh, okay, so we mentioned that the emperor died at age 30. Uh, in the at the end of the last Opium War episode. So Sishi and Prince Gong, they do their own purge on their side. Uh, one of the people they purge and behead is Sung Guofan's patron, Sushan. And the main, you know, there's nobody that's like really strongly anti-foreigner after the uh, anti-imperialist at the end, at, after the last Opium War went the way that it would, that did. But there was a, strong relatively stronger anti-foreign anti-imperialist lobby and those were the ones that they uh purged uh zeng Fan is part of that lobby his patrons part of that lobby but uh they go out of their way to reach out to him and show him that they they still uh need him and want him and want, they send him gifts and everything um and give him more and more titles just to show like, yeah, we beheaded your patron, but we're not coming after you. We need you uh, to <laughs> That's fight. That's encouraging. Yeah. So uh, he tells them, you know, he, they're, they're heaping it on pretty thick, you know, like calling him the, you know, the great, you know, warden of the marches, all these various titles. Right. Um, and he eventually actually has to kind of refuse. He says, look, I, I haven't taken Nanjing. Um, don't, please don't give me any more honors until I successfully take uh, the Taiping capital. 
and he writes in his journal he's really worried it's a really interesting psychology this guy has right because he's he's so worried about all these honors and he says you know my status my stature will be too high my undeserved reputation has outgrown itself this terrifies me to the extreme uh, so probably he might just be a student of history yeah because yeah. there are so many cases in history of flying just a little too high and but being, I don't, being I, brought down. Can't imagine uh, Napoleon writing something like that in his journal. <laughs> no, but when there's somebody higher than you, right. and yet you're you're the one doing all the work, yeah. so you your reward your eventual reward yeah. will be a shallow grave because you start to scare your employer, yeah. Yeah. or they they get tired of sharing the credit. So the uh, Qing actually go from convincing the British imperialists to uh, to stop feeding and Qing to hiring them to transport troops, and the British uh, are up for it. So they <laughs> they they do a big shuttling operation, which impresses Zheng Guofen because they're able to move troops faster on the steamships than they've uh, been able to do. But the British charge such a huge amount of money. It's 180,000 tails of silver. A tail is like seven grams of silver, I think. Um, and so they're charging uh, mint for the privilege. It's one third of all customs revenue for Shanghai for a month. It's the monthly salary for a 40,000 soldiers. So that, that's the price of British neutrality then. Yeah. <laughs> so Fen is so upset uh, that he writes that this is shocking and pitiful. And, and, but he also clues in that China needs steamships. He's like, we have to do this. Um, and they do. So they start reverse engineering the steamship um, in 1862. Uh, they figure out this, the mechanism. And he says, I am delighted that we Chinese can now use these cunning foreign techniques. Now, they can't treat us so arrogantly on account of our ignorance. Um, mm. yeah, they're going to treat them arrogantly for a little while longer, <laughs> as we'll see. Mm. But uh, um, yeah, and then in 1862, there's a cholera epidemic in Shanghai that is estimated to have killed uh, about one-eighth of the whole population. And again, in and around Shanghai, there are millions of people. So this is just another, you know, another fact about how the, the massive casualties that we're hearing about in this war come about. It's also because of these kinds of plagues and these besieged um, areas. Hmm. So now I, we're into the summer of 1862. Yeah. And, and Ward came up with some interesting new ideas. I wonder if he was influenced by the British transporting uh, Qing troops for them there are quite a few rivers and canals in this area and they they were all considered obstacles and Ward decided to turn them into opportunities. He bought some river steamers and some troop transports. He put some artillery on them. So now he's got makeshift gunboats and he started transporting his troops by river and by canal going around Taiping armies when he, when he could. And he had quite a few, uh, successes. His reputation grew, his army's reputation grew, and this raised morale in uh, Chinese armies that they were fighting beside. Ward himself, though, was still distrusted. Uh, he refused to shave his forehead and wear a ponytail. He wouldn't wear the fine Mandarin robes that he'd been given as gifts. So the imperial court, for whatever reason, limited the size of his force it it could have been significantly larger and even more effective by september of that year he had five thousand men he had organized them into battalions with their own artillery and then plus his little fleet of river boats i wonder you know to what extent he was really trying to honestly <clears throat> serve his uh chinese bosses he, he had a Chinese wife, uh, Chang Meihua. I don't know. Interesting possibilities there. He's really not 
very famous uh, unless you're looking at this time period close enough. In September of 1862, he fought a battle uh, near Ningbo and was shot in the abdomen and died the next day. Uh, that wasn't the end of the ever-victorious army, but it was certainly the the end of Ward. And many of the things that he did, many people who have heard of the ever-victorious army aren't aware of his name. It's usually linked with the name of his eventual successor, George Gordon, <laughs> who got the nickname Chinese Gordon, and most of the credit. There have been a few novels written about Ward. And funny, you should mention Last Samurai. There was somebody interested in making a movie about Frederick Townsend Ward. It was John Woo. And he'd even cast the actor to play him, Tom Cruise. Whoa. Maybe he could have dodged bullets. No, well, but he didn't. He wasn't very good at dodging bullets. Well, didn't they make The Last Samurai? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so uh, about... Frederick Townsend Ward, the American uh, minister uh, in China, Burling Burlingham, uh, he says, he said about him, he taught the Chinese their strength and laid the foundations of the only force with which their government can hope to defeat the rebellion. So um, when they take Ningbo, they shell it with uh, six gunships. They shell it all day. They take a break at 2 o'clock so that Captain Du could enjoy his dinner. Um, (laughs) The Hong Kong China Mail writes that this uh, pirate army, which goes to from Britain to help the uh, Qing, um, did more damage than the rebels did in the whole five months that they had possession of of Ningbo. Uh, And the New York Times, now that the imperialists, specifically the British, are... uh, are in um, are in there fighting on behalf of the regime against the Taiping, you know, the, the New York Times is worried about this. So the New York Times says, you know, the English are holding up the Manchus now. Quote, will they do it for nothing? No, they will ear long. <laughs> they will ear long become the virtual rulers of the empire. And the problem the New York Times has with this is, should not the United States have something to say too in control of these questions? in which they have such tremendous in, uh, tremendous interests at stake. So we're already getting that, like, uh, carve up the world <laughs> kind of uh, mentality about mm. China, which, which is going to get worse and worse. Um, so there's one of the complaints that the English have about all these different characters, including Gordon, etc., um, is... Uh, is that the these guys are just running around not taking orders from back in England. Uh, and specifically, <laughs> there's a quote in uh, the English press about one of the, the Admiral, Admiral Hope, who, uh, you know, shelled Ningbo and so on. Um, <laughs> and they said, you know, the chronic Indian disease, disobedience of English orders, has extended to China. Um, the, the flotilla of this fleet that's sent to help... Um, the the Qing against the Taiping. They're they're referred to as the Anglo Chinese flotilla on official on an official basis. Um, <laughs> colloquially, they're actually called the Vampire Fleet. Oh wow! <laughs> so oh, you were wow. saying you were telling me about his successor, about Ta- Ward's successor. Yeah, his immediate successor was an American, H. Uh, a. Burgovin who is described as an unsavory character. The Chinese didn't trust him. He was especially greedy, well, not surprising in a mercenary, but he was also a racist and didn't hire his his feelings. Uh, didn't hide his feelings, I beg your pardon. So, so uh, Li Hongshang, who'd been uh, keeping an eye on Ward, and he was the governor of Jiangsu, he asked for a British officer to command the force. And they found George Gordon. So this fellow was born in 1833, fourth generation army. So his career was laid out for him. His his father was a general. Uh, He had a combative streak and apparently a tendency to disregard authority. 
and the rules if he felt they were stupid or unjust. He graduated two years late because of this habit. Uh, his teachers held him back to punish him. And like many of the characters we've talked about in the 19th century, very religious, not one particular denomination. He seems to have cherry-picked from several different um, Protestant religions and was really badly scarred by, I believe, the death of his sister. She died of disease, which he took as a sign that you know God had abandoned him and so on. He got into the Crimean War. Apparently, he had a death wish. He, he just wanted to die gloriously in battle. They sent him to Corfu, which was miles, miles away from any fighting, and he just kept writing letters over and over and over to get himself a combat posting, and they finally gave up and sent him to the Crimea, where he made friends with your favorite, Garnet Wolseley. Garnet Wolseley. There he is. The same guys all the time. So Gordon... uh, tried very hard to get himself killed. He took dangerous jobs, was wounded by a Russian sniper. Apparently, they they describe him as charismatic and and brave. And, of course, all of his superior officers disliked him for not following orders and uh, thinking he was better. So when the Crimean War died down, he volunteered to go to China. Well, actually, he had a job in between that, but it was very boring paper pushing, and he was pretty unhappy. It's in 1860 that he volunteered to go to China for the Opium War. He really didn't get there in time to see any big action, uh, but he was around for the burning of the Summer Palace and the occupation of Beijing. Yes, I think I had a quote from him at the last episode where he was talking about well, he agreed that a reprisal was justified, but he called burning the palace vandal-like. And he yeah, wrote, he, he said, I can't believe the beauty of the things we've been destroying. <laughs> yeah, he wrote home saying it made one's heart sore. <laughs> Which I, I guess is some evidence that he had heart. So you know, Well, that. so did Elgin. <laughs> yeah, he sure did. Tortured, yeah. tortured soul. Mm. At first, Gordon was uh, sympathetic to the Taipings. He seemed to have believed that, you know, as they were Christian, Britain should work with them. But then he saw some of the atrocities they'd committed and changed his mind. Again, I think his heart was sore. So he served with the British force to defend Shanghai from the Taiping and must have attracted some attention from the Chinese organizers of the ever-victorious army who were really dissatisfied with Burgevine and promoted Gordon into his place. And Lee Hongshang took over the job of monitoring Gordon and came to the conclusion that Gordon had several uh, interesting characteristics. Uh, he was honest. He didn't steal his men's pay. So when you mention that, it sounds like everybody else did. Well, yeah, you remember, again, going back to that 1857 episode, right? That yeah. was... That was a major grievance of the sepoys uh, when they when they rose up in India. Yeah, and and the British don't have a monopoly on this. It seems to be fairly universal. Uh, Gordon also appeared humble, or at least he didn't come across as arrogant or or conceited. He was demanding, though. He was constantly demanding money uh, for his men, for the men's equipment, and apparently he had a temper. Some of the, the mandarins were irritated by his constant demands for money, and they had a solution. They said, just let your men loot. And Gordon said, no, that's not the way, you know, he was already thinking hearts and minds. How do we win over people in areas that the Taiping control? It's certainly not going to be by going in and, you know, raping, killing, and looting. Um, Gordon gets a lot of credit for the ever-victorious army's innovations uh, and their victories. Uh, I saw on his wiki page, he gets credit for the naval force and the uniforms, which were both Ward's ideas. Uh, I have a a biography of Gordon. Uh, I hadn't read it in a long time. It's from 1960. 
uh, Martyr or Misfit is the title. You seem to fit right into me. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad title. Just it's a little bit, you know, a little bit dated and a little bit uh, build, sure. building up the hero. Uh, Gordon was pretty... He was appalled, actually, by Chinese tactics when he took command. He was most, most disgusted by the willingness of Chinese officers to take massive losses in these, you know, huge frontal attacks, these human wave attacks. So maybe he could have played go. He said, no, look, let's outflank them and, and not surround them. If you surround the Taiping, they will fight to the death because they know you're not taking prisoners. So leave them a line of retreat, leave them an opening. And then when we pressure them, that's Sun Tzu right there. I mean, that's one of the, yeah, that's one of the tenets of their whole strategic uh, framework. Yeah. So he said, stop attacking them head on, stop cutting off their retreat and we can push them out of places. And it seems to have worked. And then he did weird things like treating prisoners of war kindly. He even recruited some former Taiping into the ever victorious army. And then he discovered firsthand how unpopular the Taiping were in some of the territories that they had occupied. As the Taiping retreated, the peasants would come out of their homes to hack down fleeing soldiers and and murder their oppressors. Burgovine, the former ever victorious army commander, was... uh, out of a job. So he joined the Taiping and tried to set up a a foreign force for them. It didn't work out. He was defeated by Gordon. Uh, He was captured and expelled from China. That was his only punishment. I don't know if that was to avoid annoying the Americans. Extraterritoriality, I guess. Well, I think he was stretching it by joining the Taiping. (laughs) So Gordon was uh, imposing harsh discipline on his own troops. It didn't always work, right? Many of them were mercenaries. They still wanted plunder and unsupervised, you know, they'd be murdering and raping within minutes. He had several of his own soldiers shot. Mm -hmm. And like Ward, there was no question about his courage. He led from the front and for some reason I cannot discover other than his death wish. He refused to carry a gun or a sword. So he went into battle armed with a, a, a cane. Uh, unlike Ward, he didn't get wounded. He, he just seemed immune to bullets, which of course made his troops believe that he was protected by supernatural forces. So it just, you know, the legend just grew. These characters were all over the place by, by this point. So there are French riflemen in Ningbo. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's Gordon's ever victorious army and they're, they're spreading out and they never go away. So even after this war is over, you have these kinds of people in different corners of China, giving advice and running little projects uh, from here on in. Um, there's a, there's a guy, um, who, who talk, who talks about how the British government, uh, you know, is basically running these operations in some sense. They, he quote, Edward Bora is his name. He's a Shanghai customs officer. And he says, you know, the British government will habitually share the plunder, assist the encroachments, protect and honor the adventurer. And yet, in the same breath, pity the victim, denounce the denounce the expedition, and condemn the policy. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it, right? The British are going to say, "Oh, damn these mercenaries and the damage that they do." What's our share? <laughs> I don't know. The, the Chinese. What is these? What is what does Elgin say? The Chinese just don't understand that I'm their best friend. Um, <laughs> but in by 1863, it's like now we're into famine. You know the the agricultural economy has collapsed um and so this is not just besieged towns this is like the countryside mm. in the south um so as Zhang Guofan marches through he he says um through Anhui he says everywhere in Anhui they are eating people everything is yellow straw and white bones you can travel an entire day without meeting a single other person um 
And then, you know, he looks on the bright side and he says, you know, campaigning in a region with no people, the rebels will be like fish out of water. In a countryside devoid of cultivation, they will be like birds on a mountain with no trees. Like sitting ducks, I guess, to shoot. Um, nice. So, but things have fallen so far uh, in China that one of, the, one of these Englishmen in Shanghai, L- Lieutenant Lister, he says, if Gordon liked, he could dethrone the emperor and start a new dynasty. Well, maybe overstating the case a little bit, a little bit, although Gordon's prestige was uh, at its peak when he captured uh, Su Su Shao. Mm -hmm. But that was a turning point for him personally. He uh, made a declaration to the city. He guaranteed fair treatment for any Taiping who surrendered Mm -hmm. and the city surrendered. He kept his own army out in order to prevent them from looting. And then Manchu troops went in and massacred everybody, uh, holding to the idea of family responsibility. So if a Taiping soldier is fighting against you, that makes his wife, children, parents, siblings, all complicit in his treason, so they all have to die as well. And Gordon was uh, stunned incredibly angry and well as i said before he believed that the taiping would surrender if you give them a half a chance but if you're going to slaughter everybody the next town's not going to surrender they're they're going to fight to the death and it's going to be much much harder so his reward for this victory was to be sent uh an envoy from the emperor came with ten thousand silver tails Mm and silk banners celebrating Gordon as a great general, uh, Gordon turned it down. Mm-hmm. He said, owing to the circumstances surrounding the capture of Su Chao, I am unable to accept any mark of recognition. I guess he didn't want his name associated with what had happened there. And he was making a point which the emperor didn't particularly care for. He was uh, mightily offended. And then Gordon started quarreling with Li Hongshang over the execution of the prisoners. And that led to him being sidelined for a month. They just benched him. He came back for the Battle of Changshu. And the ever-victorious army was sent to capture secondary cities. He was not sent in the direction of Nanjing. The Manchu troops wanted that honor for themselves. They also wanted to uh, sack the city. So he was sent to secondary jobs. As a consolation prize, the emperor promoted Gordon to the rank of Tidu, uh, which came with an imperial yellow jacket. There were only 40 men in China entitled to wear it. Hmm. So that's a pretty serious hmm. honor. He turned uh-huh. down another 10,000 tails of silver, and he also turned down a cash gifts from the merchants of Shanghai. It's about this time that he got the nickname uh, Chinese... Gordon. So July 1864, uh, Zhang Guofan comes to Nanjing. Uh, he, they, you were saying Li, Liu Xucheng tried to relieve it multiple times uh, from the Taiping side, but was unsuccessful. So um, Zhang Guofan takes it uh, July 1864 and again, immense casualties. Um, Hong Xuchuan, the guy the Taiping emperor, the guy who started it all with his visions, he was already dead by the time the Zhang Guofan entered the city. He had died back in June. Um, Li Xucheng took the young monarch uh, out. He was trying to escape, but they both got caught um, and they were both executed as well. Um, There were immense massacres. Uh, And that pretty much is the uh that's pretty much the end of the the well there is a rebellion there is still a bit of a a a spillover right there were still thousands hundreds of thousands of taiping troops and it wasn't until 1871 that the last taiping army was completely wiped out and then some of these guys escaped into vietnam and the spillover there was really unfortunate. 
well, unfortunate for everybody, uh, which we'll touch on in the, not the next episode, the one after that, I guess. Right. Wow. Um, so the worst civil war in history, the worst war in history prior to World War One, and and comparable in terms of casualties. Yeah. Um, one uh, one Chinese kind of reformist writer in 1901, uh, Liang Chi Chao, writes, uh, the Manchu dynasty, which was practically at its last gasp, owed its survival mainly to the British and French. Um, and so, like, what are the what are we talking about in scale? Um, oh, let me just, you know, another another. Uh, you know, let's let's put a Japanese voice in here in anticipation of our next episode. Um, this is someone very important in the Japanese uh, kind of reform movement, Ito Hirobumi. Prime Minister. The Prime Minister, Ito Hirobumi. He says uh, in an interview, I think in like 1919 or something. Oh, no, 1900. He says, the greatest mistake which you Western people and especially you English people made in all your dealings with China was to help the Manchus in putting down the Taiping Rebellion. There can be very little doubt that the Manchu dynasty had reached the end of its proper tether when the Taiping Rebellion occurred. And by preventing its overthrow, Gordon and his ever victorious army arrested a normal and healthy process of nature. Nothing that the Manchus have done since affords even the slightest evidence they deserve to be saved, rather the contrary. And when they fall, as fall they must and will before long, the upheaval will be all the more violent and all the more protracted for having been so long and unduly postponed. Now, Hirobumi has his own dirty fingers in the pie, so he's not exactly a uh, detached observer, but... Well, no, but it's an is... interesting reference to the the cyclical view yeah, of... Yeah, that, it's that theory, exactly. Rise and fall, right? Um, now, just in terms of the casualties, uh, I'm going to quote Platt here just in terms of how people calculate these things and, and think about these things. Uh, according to one American study published in 1969, by as late as 1913, nearly 50 years after the fall of Nanjing, China's population had yet to recover to its pre-1850 level. Now, in three episodes, I'm going to talk about the famines of 18. 1876 and 1901 so those also played a huge role but um you know none of these things are unrelated from any of the other things um meaning the famines also uh are caused in some part by the destruction of this rebellion which uh was caused in some part by the opium wars and the encroachment of imperialism so getting back to platt a more recent study by a team of scholars in china published in 1999 estimated that the five hardest-hit provinces, Jiangxi, Hubei, Anhui, Zhejiang, and Jiangsu, together suffered a population loss of some 87 million people between 1851 and 1864, 57 million of them dead from the war, the rest never born due to depressed breath rates. Their, birth rates. Their projection for the full-scale war in all provinces was 70 million dead with a total population loss of more than 100 million. They are, these are controversial. Critics argue there's no way to know how many of the vanished people died and how many took up lives elsewhere. Nevertheless, most even the most subjective anecdotal reports from travelers on the lower Yangtze testified to the deep scars on China's cities and countryside, which were still far from being healed even decades after the Taiping War, and those figures begin to give a sense of the unprecedented scale of destruction and social dislocation that consumed China in what is believed to be the deadliest civil war in all of human history. So yeah, it was a doozy. And, you know, it opens up, you know, you will talk, everybody's always talking about opening China up, right? This, this is what opens China up to anybody who wants a piece of it at this point. There's almost no capacity to defend its sovereignty left. So where to now, Dave? 
Japan. So they are watching all this with a lot of interest, I take it? Yeah, you better believe it. So we saw in India how a lack of unity allowed the East India Company and then the British to come in and and dominate. We've seen China try to keep the foreigners at arm's length and the foreigners keep breaking China's arm. And Japan's going to take a different approach and they're just going to shut the door entirely or, or try to. All right. That'll be the next episode of Civilization.